and he said, Murray, have you heard of this thing called the internet? And I was like, I think I heard of it. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, what is it again? Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Today's episode of Growth Everywhere is brought to you by Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly, has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. SingleGrain covers services such as search engine optimization, Facebook advertising, Google advertising, YouTube advertising, content marketing, and conversion rate optimization. To learn more about SingleGrain, go to www.singlegrain.com grow to learn about eight marketing campaigns that we've used in the past to help uh, clients grow, including the one that helped generate over 1,500% return on investment. Hey everyone, so today's interview is with Murray Hittery, who is one of the co-founders of EarthWeb, which eventually morphed into uh, Dice.com. Um, for those of you that um, you know might know Dice.com, and that company actually uh, went public, uh, was one of the first internet companies to go public. And you know Murray also has founded, you know, co-founded four other companies and currently runs a company called eBility. But um, the fact that he's done so many different startups, you know, lends, um, lends a different type of perspective here in terms of entrepreneurship in general, like how everything in general from traveling to uh, he talks about music composition and uh, also, you know, photography. How does this all tie in with entrepreneurship? So you'll learn, you know, a little, you know, this will be a little deeper talk around entrepreneurship and what it really takes to succeed and, you know, what's really gotten him to, to where he is. And, you know, he's a very, uh, very genuine person, really nice person. Um, yeah, so hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have Maury Hittery, who is the founder of eBility. And also at the same time, he's also previously founded EarthWeb, which was later changed to Dice Inc. Uh, he's also founded Vista Research, iAmplify, and Primary Insight. And he's also a world traveler, athlete, photographer, and composer. Murray, how are you doing today? Awesome, Eric. Thanks for having me and excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So, you, you know, let, let's start off with your, with your background first. You've done so many different things, all these different companies, and at the same time, you've also you've done all these companies with, with your brother. So let, let's hear about your background. Yeah, uh, you know, I come from a, a really close family uh, in New York. We grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, my grandfather came to this country uh, as an immigrant in 1910, and uh, he came with nothing. You know, he one of those classic stories where he came, uh, you know, by ship to the uh, to the Lower East Side, lived in uh, the Lower East Side of the tenements of Manhattan. He uh, peddled on the streets uh, for years, uh, scraping together money to you know take care of the family, and eventually built the family up. Um, and uh, was one, he was one of the first to actually go to China and uh, and build a wholesale business and import uh, textiles and eventually clothing, and that became a family business. So, so the notion of um, being an entrepreneur and also being an entrepreneur in context with family was something that was really 
uh, near and dear to my heart and really in my DNA, genetically in my DNA, literally. Uh, and so uh, when the opportunity came to, to start my own company, it made a lot of sense for my brother and I, my older brother Jack and I, to work together. Uh, and uh, that is what exactly what we did in, uh, in the 90s, right after I finished uh, college. Okay, got it. So well, let's talk a little bit about EarthWeb first, because a lot of people are a lot of people know what what Dice Inc is. So can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so EarthWeb uh, was a company. The first company I started uh, was about twenty two, twenty three years old. Uh, my brother, three years older, he had seen the early days of the internet when he was. Uh, when he was working at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, that's the government research facility. So he got to see the earliest days of the internet, um, you know, before it became commercial. Uh, and this is actually pre-web. And so uh, he and I started chatting, and he said, "Murray, have you heard of this thing called the internet?" And I was like, "I think I heard of it. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, what is it again?" And this is like back in 1994, so early, early days. Uh, so he and I started to look at it, and we were like, this thing's going to change the world. And we weren't sure exactly you know, how uh, that was all going to unfold, but we knew we wanted to be a part of it and this excitement about endless possibility. And so EarthWeb started as a developer of websites. Uh, the, the web was created um, back in that time. Tim Berners-Lee created HTML, and the first websites started to emerge. And so we've, we built the first and largest and most robust sites on the Internet, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art to Bertelsmann to the New York Stock Exchange. On and on, we built some of the biggest sites, named by Wired Magazine as the top web shop across the country. And, and then it morphed into a site for developers. When Java came out, the programming language in 95, we realized that our developers and other developers didn't really know a lot about it and how to implement it. And so we built a site called Gamelon, and that was named after the Indonesian orchestra, the Javanese orchestra, uh, where lots of pieces come together. And that's essentially what Java was. Lots of different pieces of code, or applets, as they were called mm -hmm. at the time, came together to form a whole, and that's what we did with the site, and it took off. Sun Microsystems, which created Java, became our sponsor, many other companies became sponsors, and then we shifted the company from a service business model, building websites to now what was a publishing company, a media company, generating money from advertising um, from many big tech companies and reaching the IT audience. And we were the largest portal for the IT world, from Java developers to C developers to database developers, HTML developers, all kinds of programmers and folks in the IT space would come to EarthWeb and its network of sites to get information and share information. Got it. Cool. And I, I think the way I remember Dice is, you know, a lot of people use is pretty much a recruiting tool too, as well, yeah. right? So at that at that point in time, um, so we had actually just taken the company public in 1998. Uh, it was an incredible time, November 1998. Actually, the market, uh, the IPO market, was closed for about six months. And um, uh, there was a real uh, concern in the market whether, you know, when it would open up again and when companies can go public. And uh, we decided to push forward with our IPO. We were one of the first B2B um, IPOs. So there were lots of consumer ones, right? You had eBay, you had Yahoo, uh, you had Netscape at the time. And then we came with a business-to-business -business, uh, IPO, and we opened the market back up on November 11, 1998. And that was an exciting day, exciting time. It was one of the biggest pops, uh, first day gains in NASDAQ history. And, and um, it, 
really put us in a position to grow the company dramatically. And the key thing we looked at was how do we grow acquiring other companies but also adding on functionality. And the career um, service, right, uh, classified ads was a key piece to that. Right, the key piece to any publishing model, whether it was in the past newspapers or other uh, publications, was not only gener generating money from advertising, but also classified ads. And of course, job listings are the core of classified ads. And so we were planning on building a, a whole job and career portal. And then we found Dice, which was very small at the time, based in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, very small number of people and about two, three million dollars of revenue. And we acquired that site and put it into the EarthWeb network. And eventually it grew so big, um, we just unleashed that across our massive user base. And it went to you know, huge numbers and became you know, the leading job board and, and career site for IT professionals and is that till today. And so we switched the name of the company from EarthWeb to Dice because it was really became our flagship site. And, um, and during the, the bubble burst of 2000, mm -hmm. that's when advertising completely fell off the cliff across the industry. And so we sold off a bunch of the advertising websites. And in a restructuring, we then uh, kept Dice as our core property, uh, along with some other properties that related to it. But we became really a career site at that point, um, driven by classified ads and subscriptions from businesses. Got it. It sounds like you, you've had to make a, a lot of tough decisions. You, you've had to, you know, first of all, you, you went public, but you all, it sounds like you guys had to take the, the company private again. And then you had to change the name to Dice and focus on Dice at the same time. So a lot of tough decisions there. So the, the question here is, how do you go about making tough decisions? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a it's a great question. There's, you know, experience certainly helps, but at the time I was 27 years old, so there was only so much experience, uh, you know, that I and and my brother and and uh, you know we had at the time. Uh, we had a we had a great board, um, but really it was all that was new to all of us. Um, prior to uh, that restructuring, to grow the company, we needed lots of cash to acquire businesses and to fund businesses. And so there was a point in which cash was very cheap if it was borrowed in what was, you know, at the time, the vehicle was a convertible bond, convertible debt. And so our board uh, and, and executive team, we decided to raise a huge amount of money, it was over $80 million, in a convertible bond. And what that meant was we had no dilution in stock. We didn't have to give stock, but at the same time, um, we had to pay that money back at some point. And so the timing for us became a difficult decision of what do we do now when we uh, were in a position to owe that money, but the market collapsed and we couldn't raise more money in the public markets. And so that's, that's how that decision came about, Eric, to restructure the company, take it private, and convert our bondholders into equity holders mm. and tell them that, hey, look, we believe in this business. It's a profitable business. The market has had major issues, but we're a solid company. And we were a solid company. And if you look now, now this is going now 15 years later, just about, mm. um, the company is thriving and back on the public markets again, incredibly profitable and, and provides a tremendous need for uh, customers across the board to help them with their careers um, at Dice.com. So really, really proud of getting through a tough time, making tough decisions, 
but we did the right thing for everyone involved, shareholders, uh, bondholders, and, and, and really the customers at the end of the day won out. Nice. No, I, I definitely do remember, remember Dice uh, when, the, when the internet first came out. Um, so in, in terms of, you know, you, you, take a, you take a company public. I mean, you know, what are some unforeseen roadblocks you experienced when you were going public? Yeah, well, uh, the first one is that the timing is, is so much out of your control. Um, and so you can have a great business, but if there are macro events taking place um, that are out of your control, then, then you, you're just not able to go public. And so we were in that period of time when you know, we were planning, everything was being, you know, going well, we were writing our prospectus, filing our filings with the, um, you know, with the SEC, and, and then the market just shut up. It just dried up completely. And you know, we were sitting back like, wait a second, we got to raise cash. We have to grow this business. You know, uh, we need to figure this out. And so that's when you also make tough decisions, right? Of do we retrench? Do we raise money privately and wait for the market to open up? Um, and that's when, you know, frankly, you know, my brother, myself, our board, we really made what I think is a ballsy decision to go forward with the roadshow and go forward with our IPO when it could have meant a much uh, lower price to the company. Uh, but we decided to move forward anyway because we believed in our business and believed in what we were we, what we were doing, and so we did, and it worked out. But you know, I could have seen I could see many companies taking a, a more conservative approach um, and and just waiting for the market to come to them. But we decided, you know, to go to the market and, and create the market. Got it. Now, you know, when just one more note on you know on, on taking a company public. I mean, you're 27 years old. You know, this is this is you know one of your first business, or this is your first business, pretty much. Um, when do, you know, how do you get the knowledge to know? Like, you know, how do you arm yourself with the right knowledge to make sure you're not getting quote unquote screwed over when you're doing something like taking a company public? Yeah, um, you know, it's a that's a great question, and it's uh, there's no way to have that experience without having gone through it, and. You know, there's very few people that have actually gone through that. I mean, in, in you know, recent history, we're talking about thousands of people total, like in the U.S., that have actually, you know, been the founders of companies going public. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. You just have to surround yourself with the best advisors possible. Um, we, were, we were lucky to have, you know, a board that had been involved, invested in companies that had gone public, uh, but also our law firm was fantastic, uh, Morrison and Forrester. You know, they really handheld us, making sure that everything was done properly. And and then, of course, our bankers. We were um, uh, J.P. Morgan was our was our lead bank at the time. And you know, for such a huge company, uh, which you know, J.P. Morgan is such a huge company, uh, they really took us under their wing and um, really invested in us because. They wanted to make a statement as one of this. We we were actually their first internet IPO, uh, so we were very important to to their investment banking division, and so they they really kind of nurtured uh, the relationship, and and that's why you just have to surround yourself with the best advisors. Uh, J P Morgan, Morrison Forrester, you know, and, and others. We were backed by Warburg Pincus, one of the top investment firms, um, and so. The best you can do is surround yourself with the best advisors, and then you know use your best judgment. Uh, and so you know that's that's uh, that's what we did. Okay, cool. So you know you've done all these. You know we we talked about these different businesses. I'm look I'm looking at it right now, and, and it's you know doing startups is uh, it's it's very draining. I mean, once you start back up again, it's like you know you have to go through it. It's it's like pulling teeth pretty much. So I mean, um, 
well, first of all, how did you guys come up with all these new new ideas? And you know what what I guess what was your what's the secret to success? Because all of these turned out to look they all look like successes to me. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think that there's certain there's certain characteristics or qualities. Um, I think that you know my brother and I have that that really lend itself to to make something successful. Um, you know, those I think at the core of it is persistence, like really, you know, unrelenting persistence to make something happen. Um, and I think it's, it's about coming at it from a, from a, from an inspired place. Like, you know, that, that place where you wake up really excited about what you're doing. Um, and so for me, that sits on kind of creating something that didn't exist before, creating something from nothing, like, like, you know, waking up with just an idea and saying, wow, how can I make that happen? How can I put a team together? How can I make that real? How can I bring that out to market? How can I make customers' lives better and easier and, and, and help them in some kind of way? And all the best companies really sit on that um, philosophy, right, of, of making someone's life better, improving it in some way. And, uh, and, and, that's, and that's what we set about to do. You know, the career space with Dice, you know, was, people were, you know, using newspapers before and it was, it was mostly inefficient, but we created a much more efficient, um, uh, you know, marketplace with, with Dice, as we did with Vista Research um, in the expert space, as we did with eBility and iAmplify and, and all these companies. So it really is, is about improving people's lives. But in terms of what's happening on the inside for me, it's really about um, this, this passion to create something from nothing and this unrelenting persistence to see it through. Even if you hit you know, walls along the way and obstacles along the way, there's always a solution. There's always a way around it. Um, even if it means the company ends up doing something a little different than what you started out doing, which is, is most likely the case. Got it. Okay. So let's you know, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your, the current company that you run right now. Let's talk about eBility. So what's eBility yeah. all about? Yeah, eBility is a fun one. You know, when when I was uh, when I was running Dice, you know, we we had one challenge in that business, which was the cyclicality of the of the economy. So when the economy got um, got soft and people stopped hiring, we saw our revenue dip. Uh, and which makes you know logical and common sense. And then when things picked up again in the economy, economy and people started hiring again, then our revenue picked up. And we were trying to find a way to kind of smooth out right those those um, those bumps in the revenue, uh, which of course every company wants to do is have continued you know steady growth. And I realized that if there was ways to offer um, uh, solutions to our customers that not only when they're looking for a job, but also once they have a job. And this whole idea of time tracking is always an interesting one to me because personally, I never wanted to be in a business where I had to track my time, right? Where I had to be, you know, punching a clock, you know, and, and I really have structured and lived my life. And that's part of why I'm, I'm an entrepreneur is because I want the freedom. I want the ability to travel when and where I want. I want the ability to work from home if I want. I want the ability to, you know, have that kind of freedom. And so being in a business like eBility, which is about time tracking, is actually quite ironic for me. But really what's, what's at the heart of it for me is giving people more freedom. Uh, if I can save them time with a mobile solution so they can track time on their iPhone and on their Android, um, if I can save them time from having to manually enter stuff in, then they can use that time 
to spend, you know, spend more time reading books to their kids, spend more time exercising, going to the gym, going outside, going for a hike, traveling. And so that's what's at the, the, the heart of why I'm so passionate about this business is because I'm bringing freedom to people, even though it's in the context of time. And so um, it's a subscription business. And when I started this business, I looked at the core criteria for what excites me about the business model of, of a new venture. Um, the first is the con, you know, continuity and revenue. So subscription businesses, once you get a customer and they're happy, you can charge them month after month and you can build the company's revenue very nicely. And so with Ability, we've done that. It's a monthly subscription per user per month uh, to our time tracking application. And they're super happy. So we see them you know, continuing for years. Uh, it's also in the cloud. And mobile, which are, of course, you know, where business applications are going, especially for small businesses today. Um, and so, and it solves a real problem uh, for folks, a daily and an immediate problem uh, that people have in keeping track of their time accurately and simply. And that's what we do for all kinds of businesses across all kinds of industries. Okay, so I might be missing a point here. So, does it sound like the main differentiator here? I mean, when I, when I met you at QuickBooks, you know, there's they're freaking time trackers. Like, they, there's so many different time tracking boots. So, what's I guess for my clarification, what's the main thing that sets eAbility apart from like a Toggle or like a Harvest? These, these other ones. Yeah, sure. And I think for us, the you know, it's a few things. One is our customer support is phenomenal. We really handhold customers. Um, and while there's other companies that that do that. You know, our customer support team is exceptional. Number two is the way that customers input the time. We're very aggressive at finding the points in which people are working in their lives and allowing them to enter time there as opposed to having to come to our website to enter time. So, of course, the obvious ones would be your iPhone and uh, your Android device. But there's also places like Outlook where people are using a calendar and they're scheduling their time there. And why not let them do it right from Outlook? We're the only one with that type of integration. And there are many other uh, inputs that we're rolling out that you'll see uh, along those lines. So features are great. And, and really, our features are, are better than other companies. Our customer support is fantastic. And these input points are great. And it's also the full workflow of not just entering the time, but also collecting with, with a credit card your invoice from a customer at the other end of the workflow pipeline. So it's a, it's a pretty cool solution. Got it. Well, you know, I, I might just have to convert over from the time tracker that we currently use right now. Well, um, I, I, I know someone at the company. I might be able to hook you up. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. So, you know, you, you've done these, these, you know, iAmplify, Primary Insight, Vista Research, all these other companies. I mean, what are, what are some similarities you've seen from starting these businesses? You know, what kind of translates, you know, across what's kind of evergreen that, that I'll make yeah. it simpler? Well, number one is uh, it always takes longer than you think. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's for sure. You know, a lot of us have ideas and we're like, oh, yeah, and like, you know, six, 12 months, I'm going to sell this. And, and that's really, really ever the case. It happens, but it's rarely the case. So when you go into something, you know, really go into it with the mindset of the long haul, of building a solid, real company with real users, with real revenue, with real happy customers. And I think if you go into it with that mentality, then you, you'll, you'll build the right kind of infrastructure to, to see you through. Um, the second thing I would say is be open and be flexible because what you end up doing um, in the business may be different than how you start. And so, but you have to start somewhere. And, and, and that was certainly the case with, uh, with some of our businesses and um, it, it allows you the flexibility 
to, um, to really listen to customers, hear what they have to say, um, and then implement that and continue to cycle that and loop that through your business. Okay. You know, I, I, throughout this interview, I mean, I, I definitely sense that the passion. So is that something that was kind of ingrained with you, like growing up? Or is that something, you know, I, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, coming yeah. from an entrepreneurial family, is that kind of like forced upon you or where does that come from? Right, right. Uh, well, actually, a couple of things. So in, in, in the family I grew up, also in the community I grew up in uh, New York, uh, being successful in business, in particular as an entrepreneur, someone who started, you know, like starting your own business, right, as opposed to, say, you know, working for another company. Um, starting your own business really is, and, and being successful at that, um, is something that's looked, you know, very looked upon very well and looked up upon. So I think that that was that kind of value was ingrained in me at an early age. But a lot of it also comes from my from kind of my sense of initially it was survival, um, and it was about that freedom and independence, um, and not being tied or having strings to anyone or any notion of authority in that way. Uh, and so. That as a, I remember that very clearly, like in in my late teens and early twenties, I was you know very keenly aware of 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 having kind of lots of options, having choice in life, and that meant financial independence. And so, building my own company and and being kind of the the, the you know forging my own path and and having control over my own destiny, you know, from that point of view, was incredibly important to me and something I built a lot of my you know, uh, a lot of value on that. Okay, great. So, you know, let, let's talk a little bit. I mean, you, you do all these different things. Um, you know, let's talk about traveling first. I mean, you know, it, it's something I always tell myself, man, you need to be traveling before you get like really old. So it's like, yeah. how has, you know, let's talk about your traveling first and then we can, I'll ask some, some other questions after that. Absolutely. So uh, I, I got the travel bug really young. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough that my family, you know, we traveled a lot as a family to different places across the country, to Europe, etc. So I was exposed to other cultures at a young age. Um, then at 18 years old is when I, I really, you know, uh, really traveled for a long time. I spent a year traveling the world on a bicycle myself. Wow. And, you know, that was a profound experience. Uh, you know, I, I had a real sense of urgency to see the world and get out of Brooklyn where I grew up, you know, which I had a great childhood. but I grew up in Brooklyn. I wanted to see the world. I, you know, I grew up in a concrete jungle. There was a, you know, schoolyard across the street where I played stickball and handball, and and you know, I barely saw, you know, trees or a forest, you know, till I was a teenager. So, um, I wanted to get out and see the world, and I did, and uh, I did it on a bicycle, uh, camped, traveled, hiked, and and the, and the value of that was gaining different perspectives on the world and in life, seeing other cultures, meeting other people, um, seeing other places. And the most important thing it gave me was perspective. It gave me perspective to, to be able to put myself in, in someone else's position. Um, and that really opened me up dramatically and, and was incredibly valuable. I can, remember, I can remember living in a village in the islands of Fiji, it was a remote island in a village of 143 people. You biked there? I actually, well, I actually <laughs> took the bike there as a stopover. I thought I was going to sit on a beach for a couple of weeks. The next thing I know, um, I'm on a, a little boat. Uh, took over two days to get to this remote island. Um, and really, it was a guy on a bus who told me to go there. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, just spontaneous, um, you know, opportunities that I, that I, you know, just grabbed a hold of. And I end up living for months in this village. And one of the key things I learned, Eric, was 
this village all was a co-op, it was, it was a cooperative. Everyone worked together and shared all the responsibilities. And so when somebody needed a home, because their home was, um, you know, it was, it was in disrepair and it was falling apart, they all came together and li- physically, literally built it themselves um, with, with logs and with, you know, straw and with uh, natural materials. And they just all came together. They took a week. They, they built this, uh, this hut, this home, and the family then had a new place to live. And I helped out, and I was part of seeing that firsthand as an 18-year-old um, where people come together. I grew up in a community where people look out for each other and come together. And so I bring that value to, to everything I do, whether it's in business, where I look at the people that work in the business as a community, and we look out for one another to, you know, for, the, for the sake of the, of the, of the whole, which is, which is building something fantastic for customers. Okay. Now, when you travel, you know, when you're traveling around the world, I mean, there's got to be a ton of hardships. It sounds like, uh, I mean, can you give us some examples of some hardships that you faced? Yeah, quite a, quite a few. And, and at the time, you know, being 18 years old uh, on that trip, you know, not having a lot of money, you know, uh, not having a place to stay, I would literally, you know, set up my tent on the side of a road. Um, you know, it would be 100 miles to the next, to the next town. Uh, a storm would hit. And you just have to persevere, you know, and, and just get there. Then the bike breaks down. you got to find a mechanic, you know, who's got some, you know, gears and tools to help fix it. Um, but you just make it happen. And it becomes a, almost a, uh, it becomes almost a, a, a literal, um, you know, these challenges are really like physical manifestations of, of how you deal with things emotionally. Uh, and, and so you really get to test and see who you are. Uh, when I was in New Zealand, Eric, I, um, I was captivated by the mountains there, by the Alps. And I decided to get into mountain climbing. And so that became kind of this physical challenge to, to test myself mentally. And it was really all about, you know, at that age, like, who am I? What do I have in me? What do I have? Do I have what it takes? And what are my limits? And I kept pushing myself harder and harder to test those limits. And so I climbed Mount Cook, which is the largest mountain on, in, in New Zealand, um, and in, in very rough conditions, uh, storms turned us back. We had to go back down uh, to the base camp, then try it again the next day. And, and it was about that kind of relentless pursuit, as I was talking about earlier, mm. like not giving up, saying, yeah, okay, there's a storm here. It'd be foolish and stupid to, pers- to continue that day up the mountain. We mm. probably, you know, would have, you know, that would have been really dangerous. But we turned around. And we, re, we, you know, regrouped. And then two days later, storm passed. We went back up and we successfully summited. And so it's about being smart and not just being persistent for its own sake and saying, oh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to push through. Sometimes you got to pull back to go forward. Got it. Okay. So travel has provided perspective for you. Now let's talk about, you know, how has photography helped out and how has, you know, does it make sense to tie photography and music together or should we separate them? Yeah, I'll start with photography, and, and then I think we can go into the music. So okay. photography, you know, I got into when I was uh, 17 years old, 18 years old, around that same time. Um, my first camera my, it was a gift from my parents for graduating high school. And at the time, I had a dream of being a National Geographic photographer. That's, that's what I thought I wanted. And so the, part of the travel was so exciting to me because it gave me an opportunity to, to photograph uh, new things. And particularly nature and landscapes, that's what, what excited me. And photography really is all about perspective. It's all about finding a perspective that tells a story. 
and and whether it's something beautiful, whether it's um, someone's perspective of how they live, where they live, uh, what they're going through at that time. And so I use photography as really as a an exercise in mindfulness, as an exercise in awareness, an exercise in how can I see the world um, not only differently, but in a way that connects me to it in a deep and profound way. And and then photography went from being kind of this nature, uh, document, you know, documenting nature to years later, now cut to my early 30s, after years and years of photographing and developing my skill, my 10,000 hours, so to speak, in photography, to one day uh, being in, um, uh, I was actually at the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens back in the city where I grew up, and walking through a beautiful landscape of trees, the sun hitting the leaves, shimmering, the wind gently caressing the leaves. And I went to photograph it. And instead of shooting it as I normally would, I was completely moved by something different, by something new that I felt, which was, can I document this? Not how it looks, but can I document how I feel about this particular tree and how I connect to it? Actually, uh, funny talking about it now, but I'm actually sitting in a part of my home, which is right in front of that actual image. So I'll just shift over for a second, and you can see part of the image here. These huh. are leaves on a tree, and they're, everything is done in camera. And movement of the camera is blending and creating the emergence of the underlying energy of those leaves and of that tree. And, and to me, that's what I saw. That's what I felt in that exact moment. There's, by the way, there's no Photoshop here or anything digital. This was actually on film, uh, you know, slide film in my camera at the time. And everything was done, you know, right through the glass of the camera. Uh, nothing manipulated afterwards. So this is, to me, this is a photograph, and it's how I felt about it. And it, it was more of a philosophical piece than just documenting nature. It's huge. So, yeah. Uh, so that's funny. I was sitting in front of this at the time. Cool. So, um, you know, so now talking about the music, uh, you know, I grew up with music. I was six years old uh, when I started piano, five years old when I started playing the cello, and continued to play. When I was a, a late teenager, I realized that writing music, I had a real passion for that. And again, you could tie into the same theme we talked earlier in, in about business of creating something from nothing, right? And to me, it wasn't about interpreting someone else's music as great as Chopin and Bach are. It wasn't about interpreting them. It was about learning from them and then creating something new from myself that, that didn't exist before and my own expression. And I, I, I really made that connection. And so in college, I actually was a uh, com composition major, uh, studying composing, classical composing, and then um, had to, one of my dreams come true of my first symphony was performed in St. Petersburg, Russia in uh, 2004, I believe. And just sitting there with that full orchestra playing my, my work, uh, you know, I never felt more alive than in that moment. But from a philosophical point of view, what I'm trying to do with the music is the same thing as I just described with the photograph behind me with photography, which is trying to really have a deeper understanding of the universe, of, of my place in it, and of that kind of underlying uh, and connecting energy of, of all things. And so that's what I'm exploring in the music. That's what I'm exploring in the photography. And I don't think it's any coincidence, Eric, either, that the businesses that I've, that I've chosen to pursue and create 
are really all about connecting people. You know, that's what DICE does. It, it connects people to their careers and jobs. That's what Vista Research did. It connected experts to hedge fund managers that want to learn more and, and invest better. Um, iAmplify, same thing. It connected uh, experts and gurus. Uh, in different areas, from yoga, you know, to meditation, it connected them with people that wanted to learn that. Um, and with eBility now, that's what we're doing with those small businesses. We're connecting them as well. So it's really something that I'm passionate about is bringing that that value to out to the world. Great. It, it sounds like everything you've done here. I mean, in traveling, you know, composing, photography, even being, you know, doing the athletic stuff. I mean, everything kind of balances out what you're doing in terms of business because there's a lot of stress there. And what I see. What you see when people are starting up, they're 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 almost too immersed in the business, and maybe the key takeaway here is you know go out and travel or go do something else. Otherwise, you're you're yeah. going to be very um, tunnel vision, right? Yeah, I mean, I, my best ideas, Eric, don't come from sitting in front of the screen, you know, working on that particular project. They they come when I'm out hiking. They come when I'm you know up in the in the sequoias and the redwoods in Northern California just walking aimlessly through those magnificent natural sculptures. You know, they, they come from, you know, just jumping in the ocean and just staring at the sky. They, they, they come from watching the stars. They, they come in those moments where you can create the space to have something new happen, you know, where ideas can take root and, and they, can, they can flourish where there was, you know, if, if your mind is filled, if you're in the office and you've got back-to-back meetings, you know, you've got 10, 12 hours of meetings with your team. By the way, that's all important, right? And you think, you're like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm working hard. I'm meeting with investors. I'm, you know, meeting with customers. I'm, you know, meeting with my team and doing product ideas and roadmaps and, and wireframes and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that you're, you're still, you're so in it that you can't see something new that's possible. And so that can only happen where there's an empty space of nothing that, you just allow something new to fill the space. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, this definitely ties into, you know, being free and having, you know, being able to do what you want. But at the same time, if you're building a startup, you know, there's a lot of, it does definitely requires you to be there. Right. So doesn't that kind of take away from your freedom? Almost, it's almost as if you're tied down yeah. again. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great conundrum and paradox of being an entrepreneur. You want to create this free life for yourself and then you find yourself working 16 hours a day and you're like, what happened? <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, I find that, um, you know, I, I remember a quote from Igor Stravinsky, the great Russian composer, and he said um, that for him, freedom is attained through limitations. Uh, and in music, that makes sense. You have to, you know, you create, you want to write a piece, you, you pick a key, you pick a certain motive, and then you work there. Um, and, and in business, is the same thing. You, you, you know, you create a certain context. Um, there's certain limits, right, to, yes, you might have to go to an office, you might have to be in a certain city, you might, uh, but there's a lot of freedom that is then available to you within that, that framework. Um, and so, you know, as much as you have to go to the office and work hard, there is plenty of opportunity to, to have that kind of freedom that I was just describing. Um, and, uh, and, and by the way, all investors today understand that. A lot of the excuses we make for ourselves for not doing things is perceived um, limitations. So somebody might say, oh, well, no, I can't you know, take two weeks off and go do that. My investors will be very upset at me you know, because they want to see me working hard. I promise you, and I've invested in companies, if, if I see that, it, that a, an entrepreneur that I invested in is out you know, doing a meditation retreat or out hiking with their team, you know what? 
not only would I be happy with that, I would ask to join. <laughs> so, you know, that that's now it can't be all the time, right? You've got to get the work done, but you have to kind of balance that the you know, time for for you know, you know, just just putting your head down and getting the work done, logistics, you know, details, and at the same time create the time for newness, for new opportunities. And that could be, you know, for me, a lot of it is I'll go to a concert. Maybe it's a, a rock concert or a classical concert, go to the opera. And when I'm just sitting there for two hours, three hours, that creates a space where a new idea can emerge. And I get tons of ideas sitting, you know, listening to music, um, you know, in a, in a concert experience. Because, again, I can't check my phone. I can't send an email. I can't check my text. I can't, you know, I'm not bothered by any of that. And, again, it's about how do you manage that distraction, get rid of that distraction, create the time and space for your mind, for your unconscious to come to the surface and create something new. Sounds very therapeutic. Sounds like I need to go to the opera. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, you know, it's, I mean, again, all these different companies, tell me about the biggest struggle by far you faced while growing any of these businesses. What's the one biggest one? You know, I, I would say it goes back to um, to the Earthweb Dice days. You know, uh, it's a combination of of being super young and just not having the the deep experience that you know that I that I have now. Um, not having seen a lot. It was my first, you know, the first recession I had been through. You know, as a as an adult, um, so it was really a scary time. And you know, with with a lot on the table, with people's lives on the table, my employees. You know their families. That was a, a responsibility that weighed on me. You know, uh, you know very much. And our investors, uh, people that own the bonds, people that own stock. Like, how do I manage all of those responsibilities? And that weighed very heavy on me personally. Uh, so there would that was factored into the decisions about how can we 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 take care of everyone as best we can and get through this at the same time. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of kind of what we did and the choices we made. And frankly, my own considerations were put last. And, you know, there, were, there was opportunities to make a lot more money than I did in that p- period of time. But the, the choices we made were the right choices for, for, for everyone involved. And, um, and, and I'm proud of that. Great. Sounds like another hard thing about hard things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, you don't learn those lessons unless you go through them. So I'm, I'm right. glad I did. And, you know, now we've been through another recession. And, and that one just seemed a lot more manageable, uh, you know, back in 2008, right? That was a lot more manageable. And it's almost like you can see, you know, that you can see through the forest through the trees. You know that that there's, a, there's another side to it. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then it's just about, okay, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. How do we just navigate this darkness so we come out, you know, uh, on the other side, you know, in, in one piece. And, 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 you know, that's a really big difference than not knowing if you're going to come out the other side. <laughs> right. Huh. Okay. Well, a couple more questions from my side. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, one piece of advice would be, uh, I, I would say even more, you know, spend even more time with your passions. You know, uh, don't take everything so seriously. Um, be more patient, and you know, you know, really, yeah, really, don't take everything as seriously as as I did at the time. Okay, fair enough. And what's one productivity hack you can share with the audience? Uh, okay, that's a good one. Let's see. So, you know, for me, the whole to do list thing is 
you know, it, it's always been something I've looked at and, and, and have had issues with. So, you know, I've tried all the task lists and all the productivity tools. Um, but what I found is it's just more places to go, you know, check things and, and, uh, and it became frustrating for me. So what I, what I decided to do, uh, so I'll share two quick things. One is I, I, I like to condense where I go to be productive um, in terms of the software I use. So um, my calendar has now become everything for me in one place. So, of course, my meetings are scheduled there, but I actually use my calendar as my to-do list as well. Even though it's literally a click away to get your task list, I, I don't use it in that way. I put my tasks, uh, the phone calls I have to make, the emails I have to return or write from scratch, um, even the physical things I must do, like pick up the dry cleaning or, um, you know, or, or take the car in for repair. Um, I put all of that into a meeting invite. Uh, inside my calendar mm. because now that's one place I'm looking and I'm looking at because I'm definitely looking at my calendar because I need to know where I need to be at every hour of the day mm-hmm. and so, so that's somewhere I'm definitely going and so if I put my tasks in there as well then I'm sure to see them focus on them and knock them off and so I have a daily uh, meeting invite with my tasks that is in in perpetuity, and it and it constantly changes as I add and remove tasks to it. Interesting. I'd, I'd have to take a look at that. Maybe get a screenshot yeah. for this. Um, yeah. Okay. What is one must read book you'd recommend to the audience? Wow, there's so many. So uh, <laughs> the one that comes to mind is, uh, and we actually touched on a couple of the lessons from that book in this in this uh, talk, in this conversation. Uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. By uh, by Robert Persig, um, it is a profound book, um, and uh, you know it really speaks to the heart of being an entrepreneur, um, which is the pursuit of quality in what you do, and this idea of bringing awareness and mindfulness to everything you do. And as an entrepreneur, that's what you got to do. You got to bring attention to the things that most people just gloss over. You know, whether it's the design on a screen, where the button is placed, you know, on a submit form, whether it's um, an employee that's having maybe something going on in their life that no one really notices, but you notice something's off with them in, the, in that meeting and you sit with them, in, you know, after, afterwards one-on-one and you ask how their life is going and what you can do to help them. That Those are the mindful um things you can do that make all the difference um, in, in certainly in business, but, but of course in life, in life as well. Okay. So that's, it's funny. I have all these Zen books, but I never heard of that one. So we'll definitely add that in the show notes. You know, uh, it's, it's funny, Eric, cause that, that book is not really even a Zen book. Like uh-huh. he's not even a, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, a play on that, um, you know, on that whole genre. Yeah. But it's, it's really about that notion of mindfulness and, and you know, and it really, it brings to, to light kind of these two personality types of, of there's people out there that look at the big picture, kind of these gestalt thinkers that, mm. that look at, you know, like big, big thinkers. And, and, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs like that, they just see things that, that, we, that the rest of us don't see, you know, they see the future in a way that we don't see. They, they, they really can have that big arc vision of life and, and of the future. And then you've got those with personalities of super detail-oriented, right? They're going to write every line of code perfectly. They can, they can run an event 
with every detail from you know the water bottles in the right place to the chairs in the right place and and there's people that can do one there's people that can do the other but very few people can do both mm-hmm. and i think if you can exercise if somebody can exercise both those muscles right and it's it's almost a right brain left brain type of integration those are the, in, in my view some of the best entrepreneurs that can that can bring both of those to the table who's an example who, who's a good example of that uh, it's a good question. I, I think someone like Elon Musk is a good example of that. I was just going to say that. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, he's, he's doing things that are big arc, big vision from Tesla to SpaceX. But, uh, you know, from, from what I know of him and, you know, I met him a few times, you know, he's, he's in the weeds. He's in there. He's looking at details. You know, Steve Jobs had a lot of those qualities as well where he was in the product, really looking at quality and making sure things happen that matched the big arcing vision. Got it. Okay. So Murray, how do people find you online? Uh, yeah, really easy. Just murrayhittery.com, my name, M-U-R-R-A-Y-H-I-D-A-R-Y.com. And uh, you know, I, I put in one place um, access to really what I'm excited about and how I'm self-expressing through music and through photography and the ideas that, that uh, I have around businesses. Wonderful. Great. So Murray, thanks so much for doing this. Everyone, this is Murray Hittery. Make sure to find him online. Murray, thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. You were great. All right. Take care. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.